You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Last chapter, if you are with us, we saw a terrifying display of God's righteous indignation and wrath against sin in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, There was a gripping fear of the Lord as we saw this and we were confronted with God's holiness and justice on that godless city. There was fear. And at the same time, there was great relief. Great relief was given to us that although none is righteous and all deserve the same wrath given to Sodom and Gomorrah, instead, God the Son, Jesus Christ, drank the full cup of God's wrath in our place and has given us a righteousness unearned by ourselves. A righteousness earned by Jesus Christ. In short, we learned that Jesus was punished as a sodomite so that we might be treated as sons and daughters, as family members. If you missed that sermon from Pastor Alec, I want to encourage you to to go back and listen to it. But after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's rescue of Lot, In our text this morning, the camera angle in this narrative circles back around to Abraham and Sarah. We move now from Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, and we move back to Abraham and Sarah, and they take center stage again in this narrative. And as we discover in verse 1 of chapter 20, they are on the move again. They are picking up camp, and they are on the move again. They are moving from the oaks of Mamre at Hebron and they are heading towards the southeastern border of Canaan, which would become the area of the Philistines, into a region that is called Gerar. And it's here where Abraham has another run-in with a foreign king. Another run-in with a foreign king. And before we move any further, here's the plan this morning so that we can sort of map out together where we're going. I want to move through the text as we normally do. We'll have three movements in the story, but I want to carve out some more time at the end to linger on some application for our day that I think comes from this text before us. So we'll have a little bit more time for application than we normally do and I hope I hope that it will be helpful and fruitful for all of us. So let's move through the text this morning. Our first point in this narrative is I've entitled Don't Follow Your Heart. Don't follow your heart. Look at verses one and two. From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar, verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. 
so, if this account sounds familiar, uh, that is because this is now the second time Abraham has offered up his wife to a foreign king in order to save himself. This is the second time he has lied about who Sarah actually is before a foreign king in order to save his own life. If it sounds familiar, it's because it is. The first time was back in Genesis chapter 12 before Pharaoh in Egypt. And now he's doing it again, this time before the king of Gerar, a man by the name of Abimelech. We don't know how much time has passed between the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19 and this moment in chapter 20. We don't know how much time, but it's actually, we we know that it's not a whole lot of time. But given the fact that Abraham, listen, has recently, at least recently saw the righteous judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah, you would think that there would be a certain pause in the patriarch. Abraham just saw fire and brimstone fall on an unholy city because of God's righteous wrath against sin. You would think that that would give him pause before he goes and offers his wife again to a foreign king in order to save himself. But he doesn't. Abraham doesn't pause. He trusts his own instincts. He he trusts his own intuition. And he acts in the face of fear. He fails miserably again. And this is a man of faith. This is a believer. This is the man who we found out in, in, in just chapter 15, that he believed God and God accounted that belief to him as righteousness. This is a man of faith and here he is failing miserably again. And it's the same sin. This is the same Abraham who just boldly pleaded with God that God not destroy the righteous with the wicked in Sodom. He was just standing valiantly before God Almighty saying, will you destroy the city if there are 40 righteous, if there are 45, if there are 20, if there are 10? This is the same Abraham who obeyed the covenant command to be circumcised, the same Abraham who valiantly rescued Lot from the five kings of the east. And this same Abraham fails again. We can hear some of his motivation as we look back to Genesis chapter 12. What is is going on in Abraham's heart and mind to sort of justify this remarkable failure? This text should be on the screen. If not, just listen. This is Genesis. This was what, how Abraham was reasoning back when he did this the first time in Genesis chapter 12, verses 11 through 13. As he, that is Abraham, was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, 
so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Wife stealing was common in ancient in ancient times, wife stealing, particularly with, with kings, in order to expand their kingdom. They've got a visitor coming in. He's clearly royalty. He's blessed by God. And so stealing of his wife, killing the husband, and expanding his kingdom was a common thing. So the fear is a very real fear in Abraham. But the justification is just primitive. It's just obvious. At least we appreciate that honesty. And now the same thing, here we are in chapter 20, the same thing is happening in Gerar. Only the excuse this time around is much weaker. You would think Abraham would get more sanctified in his justification for this kind of failure, but he doesn't. It gets weaker. When Abimelech asked Abraham, why on earth you would lie about this and bring all of this drama on us, Abimelech asks Abraham, why did you do this to us? Abraham responds, look at verse 20, or rather verse 11 in chapter 20. Look at verse 11 and following. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Now stop right there for just a moment. The irony in this is just so full. Abraham, through his lack of fear of God, fails again and lies and gives his wife over to another foreign king. Why did you do that, Abraham? Because I thought that you guys didn't fear the Lord. Abraham should have been the one fearing the Lord. He's the one with the covenant promise. He's the one who's seen God literally cut a covenant, which would bless all of the nations. Abraham is not fearing God. And he's saying, well, I thought you guys weren't going to fear God. And so my instincts told me that my only move here is to lie. Besides, look at verse 12. Here's a pitiful justification. Verse 12, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. He's, he's doing all kinds of gymnastics. Verse 13, and when God caused me now, God, God caused me now to wander from my father's house, I said to her, now notice this, this is the kindest you must do me at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Oh, Abraham's feet of clay are fully exposed. This is a pitiful justification. Pitiful justification from the patriarch, from father Abraham. A half-truth, beloved, is a whole lie. A half-truth is a whole lie. And Abraham models this seamlessly in this text. In order to justify his own cowardice, he, he re reveals just how poorly he counseled himself. Do you hear him counseling himself? And on top of that, he persuades Sarah to lie also. 
on this point, John Calvin in his commentary on Genesis, which is a remarkable commentary. Calvin writes this. He says, quote, It is a common proverb that even fools become wise through suffering evil. But Abraham, forgetting the great danger that he fell into in Egypt, once more struck his foot against the same stone. Calvin goes on. From this... We are, we are admonished concerning how dangerous it is to trust your own counsel. As we are hearing this text, we must, as God's people right now in the 21st century, we must be admonished. We must be reminded concerning how dangerous it is for us to trust our own counsel. End quote. Particularly in the face of real fear. Abraham was facing real fear. It wasn't fake fear. He knew his life was at risk moving into the, the, the Canaan territory. Particularly in the face of real fear, it is so dangerous for us to trust our own counsel. Again, of all people, you would think Father Abraham's instincts would be thoroughly sanctified. Of all people who could trust their gut, follow their heart, trust their own counsel, you would think that this man is the man whose instincts are thoroughly sanctified. But this text teaches us something profound about human fallenness, doesn't it? This text teaches us something profound about human fallenness. This text teaches us that no one, no matter their pedigree or experience, ought to wholly trust their instincts or counsel. Well, you say, Pastor, I've been following Jesus for 20 years. This is a good and cute sermon for those new believers. This is probably a new believer study. I've been following Jesus since Moby Dick was a minnow. I think I can take my own counsel. I'm glad you've been following Jesus for a long time. But I don't think that you or I or anybody who've been walking with Jesus for a long time are prepared to say that your instincts are more sanctified than Father Abraham. The one who literally was rescued out of Egypt. Who whom God led by the hand into the starry night to say, your descendants will be more than the stars of the heaven. The one who who watched God cut a covenant which would bless the nation. The one who, who is given the covenant sign. The one who over and over and over again saw the miracle of God's presence for decades. None of us are prepared to say that our instincts are more sanctified than Father Abraham's. Again, of all people, you would think Abraham would be prepared to follow his heart. But he wasn't, and neither are we. He was not prepared to follow his heart, and neither are we. Now, I want my instincts to be sanctified, my impulses. I want your instincts and impulses and self-counsel to be sanctified. 
I want to grow. And we praise God when our impulses and instincts are, are more in line with God's wisdom. I want that for you and I want that for me. But this text teaches us that no one, regardless of pedigree or experience, ought to wholly trust themselves. Instead, okay, so what do we need? If pedigree and experience don't do it, what do we need? We all desperately need God's word and God's people to vet our own instincts. We need God's word and we need God's people to vet our own self-counsel, especially when we're fearful. Because fear, as we're going to talk about in the end, fear is a disorienting emotion. It's not all bad. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Fear is not a bad thing. But the very nature of it can be bewildering and disorienting. So particularly in the face of fear, a fear of loss or of some sort of fear, particularly then do we need God's word and God's people to help us vet our own impulses, our own instincts. Otherwise, like Abraham, the results are folly and sinful oftentimes. We're self-preserving. We're self-protecting. And that's not always the best place to make decisions. Both God's word, which is primary, and God's people, which are essential, are designed to be divine graces in life to keep us from sinful and foolish decisions, particularly when we are afraid. Always, but especially when we're afraid. And Abraham was afraid. He was scared. I've said this before, and I forget who said it first. It wasn't me. But our hearts, here's the quote, our hearts were never designed to be followed. They were designed to be led. Our hearts were never designed to be followed. Our hearts were designed to be led. And here at the beginning of chapter 20, Abraham again provides us with an example of what not to do. Don't be like Abraham here. He followed his heart. So that's point one. Don't follow your heart. Point two, let's keep moving. This is a surprising development. That's the heading on point two, a surprising development. Look at verses three and following. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, now try to just place yourself real quick before we just keep reading. But God came to Abimelech, this is the king who just took Sarah, came to Abimelech in a dream because there's no scripture. So that's how God communicated to people before scripture is canonized. He comes to him in a dream or in a vision by night. And he says to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say to me, she's my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then verse 6, God said to him in a dream, 
Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. I titled this point um, a surprising development because we don't expect this Canaanite king, this Philistine, to act with integrity. You expect Abraham to act with integrity, but Abraham fails. You expect Abimelech to act like a pagan who says, who, 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 cares, who cares about this God of of Israel, but he doesn't. He responds well to God's warning. We find a man who here in Abimelech who rightly responds to the warning of God. There's so much that could be said in this, in this paragraph, and I know I'm going to leave a lot on the bone, but let me, let me just highlight a couple of things. First, notice the severity of God regarding the sin of adultery. Did you notice the severity of God's word? Look at verse three again, if you missed it, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, that's scary enough, (laughs) right? Just to be, to be visited by God at night in a dream. And there's an instant tribunal. You're on trial. That alone, the setting is scary, but what comes out of God's mouth is altogether dreadful. Behold, you are a dead man. You're as good as dead. Time to wake up. You're as good as dead. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. This is indeed punishable by death under the old covenant. Adultery is punishable by death. God is not lying. He is dead serious about adultery. And of course, of course, God knew the innocence of Abimelech. He knew that Abimelech acted in the integrity of his own heart. But God is making a point to all of us about just how serious he is regarding the fidelity of marriage. God is dead serious about faithful marriage. Surprisingly, Abimelech musters a defense in the middle of the night. I don't know about you, but I I have a tough time getting words together when I'm suddenly woken up by a crying baby, let alone God Almighty. But Abimelech musters a defense. In verse 4 and following, Abimelech had, had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? And that word Lord there is Adonai, sovereign. He recognizes this is a courtroom. He recognizes he's on trial and he says, sovereign God, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say to me, she's my sister and, and in herself said, he's my brother in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands. I have done this. Now, perhaps this Gentile King had, had heard stories of the God of Israel, that the God of Abraham is a is a righteous judge. 
Perhaps he heard the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, how Abraham pleaded with God for the sake of the righteous in that city. Perhaps he heard, but he asked the question, will you judge? Will you count guilty an innocent man? And God responds, verse 6, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Yes, Abimelech, you did not know that Sarah was married. But also know that I have extended my restraining hand of grace to keep you from sinning against me. I want you to be well aware, Abimelech, of my sovereign mercy in your life. And like Hagar, and this is so remarkable, like Hagar, God again extends his hand of grace to a Gentile. Abimelech is, in a, is a Canaanite king. He is outside of the covenant family of God. And like we experienced with Hagar in chapter 16, God again extends his hand of grace to a Gentile, which communicates to all of us that God's plan of redemption will extend well beyond Israel and into the Gentile nations. God will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy and he is having mercy on Abimelech. This will be a God who will be a God for all people, whether they are an oppressed slave girl in Egypt or their royalty in Canaan. The only prerequisite, the only prerequisite to finding mercy with God is humility of heart. The only qualification to find mercy with God is humility of heart. And then Abimelech, I wonder what that night was like. I'm guessing not a whole lot of sleep. Look at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech, verse 19, called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? Abraham said to him, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, excuse me, what have you done to us? And how have you, have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? And again, we don't need to read it again, but Abraham gives his pitiful justification. She's, ah, she's kind of my sister, still my wife. Before we move on, uh, this confrontation between Abimelech and Abraham is really interesting and also really embarrassing, if you think about it. This is a confrontation between a godless king and Father Abraham. And the godless king is confronting Father Abraham on a sin that he's committed against God and the Canaanites. 
How embarrassing. It is a humiliating thing, isn't it? To find godless people acting with more character than God's own people. Has a situation like this ever happened to you? Have you ever found an unbeliever acting with more integrity than you in a conflict? Have you ever sinned before an unbeliever and they called you out like Abimelech just calls out Abraham? That's happened to me. It is so embarrassing. And we have two options in in those kinds of moments. We can either do what Abraham does and try to justify and talk in circles and do a bunch of gymnastics and, and then never talk to them again. Or we can just own it. We can just own the failure and the weakness and the sin. And of course, I think that's the encouragement. That's a kind of application this morning when we've been embarrassed or humiliated by the integrity of somebody that's far from God. This is a very humbling thing. Yet in, the, in humility, in the humility, there is a great opportunity for growth and gospel witness. There is a great opportunity for growth because when we are weak, then we are strong. And there's an opportunity for gospel witness. As one commentator writes, he says, but in this, in this kind of situation, God gives us the failure one, the failing one, an opportunity to repent publicly or privately, if, if that's where it took place, to speak plainly about the gospel that is our only hope for sinners like us. Jesus loved us when we, Jesus loves us when we are bad as well as when we are good. And our public sins give us an ample opportunity to testify to that amazing fact. Don't miss the opportunity. If you have blown it publicly or personally, to a believer especially, but also to an unbeliever, don't put your tail between your legs and say, well, I'm just going to unfriend them and just not deal with that. Go to them. This is a great opportunity for gospel witness to say what I did was not in concert with my faith. And I'm sorry that you had to see that kind of weakness. I sinned against God and against you. Please forgive me. And this is a wonderful opportunity for me to share with you God's love for sinners like me. So if you're humbled this morning by your own shortcomings or sin in a recent conflict or situation, don't miss the opportunity for, for growth and for gospel witness. That's our our second movement in the text, a surprising development. And now let me me just end with how the, the story ends with vindication and restoration. Verses 14 to the end. Then Abimelech took sheep, excuse me. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. 
to Sarah, Abimelech said, Behold, I have given your brother. I don't know if he meant that facetiously. (laughs) I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God. Here he's acting like the prophet he ought to. Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. My goodness. Abimelech is vindicated. Sarah is vindicated. Abraham, no doubt, has to be humbled. Restoration is granted and God has healed the house of Abimelech and has opened the wombs. That was a judgment against God on Abimelech and his people. And he opened the wombs. Next chapter, in chapter 21, he's going to also open the womb of Sarah. And that great promise is going to come to bear. So vindication and restoration is given. I want to end our time, as I mentioned up front, lingering for a moment on what appears to be a contrast in this text between the fear of man and the fear of God. And again, the examples come from unlikely sources. The fear of man is expressed in Abraham. He's self-protecting, he's, he's self-preserving, and he sins against God. That's the fear of man peace. And then Abimelech, the one we don't expect, is the one fearing God and responding with integrity. And so I want to just linger. I want to apply this to our current moment. Fear is a very common and can be a very helpful emotion. I think oftentimes in Christian circles, we, we tend to only have this low view of, view, view of fear. Fear, bad. Love, good. Let's close in prayer. Unless you're fearing God, that's good. But every other kind of fear is bad. I, I think we need to be more nuanced here. Fear is actually a God-given emotion that will oftentimes help us in situations where we're in danger and there is threat. And that fear becomes that catalyst to get us out of that space. So fear is a gift of God. It is a good emotion that, that helps protect people. However... As we've seen in the life of Abraham, fear that is untethered from the wisdom of God, which comes through God's word and God's people, fear that is untethered from the wisdom of God can lead to very foolish and sometimes sinful decisions. Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
I cannot tell you the amount of counseling sessions that we have done as a pastoral team over the last year and a half on the topic of fear. This week, just this week, virtually all of my meetings, virtually all of my counseling in some form or another touched on the topic of fear. And of course, this is understandable, right? This is understandable given the the last year and a half that we have just been through and what we're still going through. It's like like that scene from, from The Godfather, which... I hate when I make movie references from the pulpit because I'm not sanctifying the movie. Don't watch it. But there's a scene in the movie where, where Al Pacino says, just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in, right? That's how this whole year and a half has felt. <laughs> of fear, of COVID, of vaccines or no vaccines. It's just, just when we think we're like getting out of it, we're like, oh, we're back in. Another headline breaks. Another podcast series released. And more fear drips. More uncertainty. It's understandable given the moment in time we're in. And that's really why I want to linger on this point. Fear is common. It is a good emotion in many situations. It should be heeded. But I am concerned, brothers and sisters... And I can't escape this concern. I am concerned that if we as Christians are not careful, we will get swept away in what feels like to me as a systematic and coercive culture of fear. I'm not saying that there's some luminary that's pulling all the triggers and it's all connected and there's this all, there's this grand conspiracy, but it just feels to me like there is a systematic and coercive culture of fear. It is a strong tide and it keeps drawing us out into this ocean of uncertainty. This analogy that I keep using is my poor ability to surf. I tried to paddle out in a really big swell and I just got swept away. It looked like I was on a conveyor belt. Mike was there. You saw. Like I just paddle out and I'm three feet from the shore. I'm going and I'm I'm drifting. And I don't even know I'm drifting. Everybody on the shore is like, there he goes. And that's how it feels, this coercive culture of fear. We just start paddling for just a little bit and we're swept away by the next fear, by the next uncertainty, by the next other guy that's coming to get us. And I don't want, I I can't speak to the world. I can't speak to any other church. I'm the pastor of the flock of God among us. I do not want us to be swept away by this coercive culture of fear. And I believe that this kind of fear is laying a snare for the people of God. It's a snare. And let me just speak plainly. Too many of us too many of us are being discipled and shaped 
by political pundits, by TV networks, by podcasts. We're being discipled by them. No, gone are the days when we're listening to news. Present are the days when discipleship is happening. We are being discipled, catechized by social media, by TV networks, and they're shaping us. Not just people out there, it's come into the church, it's shaping us to the point where we're skeptical of one another. Are you for me or are you against me? Oh, I know the blood of Christ covers us all, but what team are you on? We've become skeptical of each other and enough is enough. If we are going to be salt and light, beloved, we need to be independent and prophetic in this age. The church has always been for 2,000 years independent and prophetic. We're rowing in the opposite direction. We're light, we're salt. We're not running from fear, we're running to it. And self-preservation and isolation from the other is always the aim of this kind of fear. Self-preservation. The other is coming. The other, whatever the other is, is coming and they're going to get us. And again, I'm saddened to see this fear seep into the church where we've become skeptical of one another. We're coming here. We're taking the the body and the blood of Christ in our hands. We're going to do that in just a moment. And then we leave here and it's almost like we get into these, this groove or, or, or tied and it's pushing us apart. We have to row in the other direction. If we're not careful, we run the risk like Abraham of trusting our own instincts and our own counsel when these waves of fear come crashing in. In short, beloved, the greatest need, I am convinced the greatest need in the world today is for the church to remain distinct. We must be a peculiar people. Peculiar. Who are you? I can't figure out if you're woke I can't figure out if you're not. I can't figure out if you're right. I can't figure out if you're left. I can't figure out, you're just different. That's the kind of church we need to be. Different. Not for the sake of difference, for the sake of salt and light, for the sake of gospel proclamation. The analogy is overused, but it's applicable here. It's like all of these fractions and fears and camps are like, are like, rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Blue chairs over here, red chairs over here, this group over here, this group over there. All the while the ship is going down. The church, we are not chair orchestrators. 
We're the ones that drop the boats into the water and say, get on the lifeboat. This thing's going down. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It's going down. We have to regain that sense of urgency or we have lost our saltiness. And Jesus says, what good is salt? That it's lost its flavor. It's to be trampled under feet. What I'm not saying is that we can't agree with certain policies and worldviews. What I'm not saying is we need to, I wish there was a verse that said unplug from every media outlet that is coming into your heads and hearts. I wish there was, honestly, because I, I almost feel like a giant exodus is what needs to happen from media in general but there's not. So I'm not saying that because the Bible doesn't say that. And I'm not saying you can't agree with certain ideologies on the right, certain ideologies on the left. I'm not saying that there's, there's space in the church for all of that. But these are not our tribes. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. These are not our tribes. We don't belong to a governor. We don't belong to Newsom or Elder we don't belong to them. That's not our tribe. We don't belong to a, a party. We don't belong to a president. We belong to a king. We belong to the king of kings and the Lord of lords who has conquered, gloriously conquered the gospel, has conquered Satan, sin, and death. All of our fears have been swallowed up in the cross and in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, what can man do to you? Look what I've done to death. Look what I've done to sin. That's our tribe. That's our glorious call. That's our vein. And we need to paddle hard together. And this king has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 